Tervist! Minu nimi on Aleksander Eeri ja vaatate fotograafiska jutusid. Minu külalne on täna pärit välismaalt, nii et pöördun kohe ümber inglise keelele. Peter Napoliello, thank you for coming. You're very welcome. You have a very successful radio show on Radio 2 called Mindbender. You also have a Pilates studio and you also happen to be not from Estonia. So where are you from and let's start from that. I'm from New York City, obviously, as you... Those that might know, I have a very heavy New York accent. And I grew up in New York City, and I spent most of my adult life in uh, Los Angeles, California, working in the music business. And I eventually, after retirement, I found my way to Estonia. And now I have a great radio station on Radio 2, which I've been doing for five years now. And it airs every Sunday night at 10 p.m. in the evening. And it's two hours of just sexy, beautiful music that just transforms and takes you on a trip. And to keep busy outside of that, I have a very successful Pilates studio here where I'm not only working with the average citizens and normal people but I have a lot of great people that are either handicapped or are suffering from illnesses or disease whether it be women with breast cancer or people with uh, scoliosis or disc issues so uh, I'm keeping really really busy beautiful and uh, how did you first become interested in music well, I think as a youngster growing up in New York, uh, your earliest memories serve you radio. And when you're living and breathing and energized by that New York City mindset and the pace that it goes at, the music's always in the air. And I was weaned on various AM radio stations back then, one being WABC AM, but it was formatted differently than it is today. In other words, today you get formats, it's rock radio, or it's pop radio, or it's hip hop radio, or it's urban soul radio. So it's formatted. Back then, you could hear everything from Bob Dylan like a Rolling Stone into Come See About Me by the Supremes, into Dominique, the singing nuns, into Johnny Cash, it was all hit music, whether it be a rock band, the Stones, the Beatles, it was all put together. So it was a cornucopia, if you will, of music. And to grow up on that and to be weaned on that and to feel those uh, messages and those sounds and that energy, it just pulls you in. And there was no avoiding it for me. Uh, I knew early on that somehow, some way, I wanted to be involved with music. Uh, I love guitars, and I have owned a collection of guitars second to none, which I recently sold to a Japanese collector for a lot of money. I had about 127, not only vintage, but rarities that I collected throughout the years. But... I couldn't play to save my life. It was irony because uh, as much as I tried, as much as I studied, as much as I practiced, I could not put it together. Regardless, I wanted to be somehow, some way connected with music. So um, when I was in university, I started as a, a nightclub DJ working in the clubs. And I got really good at that. And uh, that took me to another level. It took me to a lot of people in New York, the best nightclubs I was fortunate enough to work at at one point or another. But it also made me have a connection with the record companies where they would bring me test pressings or advanced copies to test the record for them. And I made contacts and one day I was invited to the record company. And as I'm walking down the halls, I see posters, everybody's wearing t-shirts and jeans. I said, this is me. So eventually I found my way to working for the record industry per se, as um, I started at the bottom and I worked hard and perseverance and belief and commitment and never saying never, I rose to the occasion. And here just, you know, a regular guy, New York City kid, does good by hard work, perseverance, and being responsible and punctual. Credibility is everything in that business. You know, you can't go around uh, not honoring your word. You cannot say something and not deliver on it. So I was constantly on my game, and the pressure is there. And uh, I, found my, I found my way to the highest level. I knew very early on that at the age of 50, I was gonna be done, and I was gonna go live my life. I did it at 47. So um, that's pretty much a brief synopsis of how I found my way into the music business and what my uh, origins are 
I'm a New York City boy, but I moved to Southern California when I was 28, and I lived most of my adult life based in Los Angeles, California. I lived in Malibu, I lived in, I had a beautiful apartment in Beverly Hills, but I also always kept a place in New York City. And most recently, I had a loft in Tribeca. So when I was bi-coastal, I had to do work in New York. I could stay for a few months. Or if I was in Los Angeles, I'm home. I'm based. And uh, that was that. What did you study at university? I studied marketing. I was supposed to go to law school. So my family is lawyers, and they wanted me to follow that route. I had no interest in that. So I was a political science, um, a little bit of, uh, a lot of marketing, a lot of business courses, because I think those two go hand in hand, especially in do during those years. You wanted to be either an entrepreneur or you wanted to work for the system, so to speak. So I, I had a lot of things, but I also gravitated towards things like philosophy. So for my elective courses, where you can choose and pick your courses, I took some interesting things like philosophy and and things of that genre. And, uh, you know, when I finished, I immediately uh, made it my mission to go work for the system, and there I was and as an executive. How did you end up at uh, Studio 54? By chance. Well, at that time, I was working at a number of uh, bars and clubs, big clubs, in New York City. Now, if you wanted to be a credible DJ, and you wanted to be good, and you, and you were good, you worked at predominantly the gay bars, and you were predominantly gay. I'm a heterosexual kid, but I was savvy enough and good enough and uh, humble enough to be accepted by that community. And I was working at some of the biggest gay clubs, two, 3,000 people. I didn't have a home residency, but I was friends with all the DJs, so I would love to do the guest spots. One of my dear friends, he's not with us any longer, his name is Richie Kazor. He was the main DJ at Studio 54. He was the guy. Him and I were best buddies. Pete, I'm taking off tonight. Pete, I'm leaving early. Take over for me. I find myself at Studio 54 playing great music on a great sound system. So that's the way I found my way into that particular club. But I've worked at them all, everything from Infinity to 12 West, uh, the Flamingo, the Ice Palace 57. Uh, I worked in Fire Island. I had a run in the New York nightlife club scene for five solid years. And I wasn't working one or two nights. I was working three, four, five nights. So that kind of intensity, those kind of crowds, you got to be on your game. I got really good, like anything else. You do it enough, you figure it out, and you excel. So that was my life there. For the people who don't know, then can you give a bit of uh, like a synopsis of uh, late 70s, New York, Studio 54, what is it, what does it mean, what does it mean culturally? It was a phenomena. Um, I really have to give the credit to the owners, the founders, Steve Rubel and Ian Schrager. They were just phenomenal. They had clubs that were outside of the city, but their mission and their vision was to find this space in New York and do a super club. And they found an old TV studio where they actually had it set up like where they would shoot television shows. It was the CBS film uh, studios and they did TV shows there. So it had high, high ceilings and it had all the capacity to do props and all kinds of special effects. So the natural name was studio. It was on 54th street, hence the name studio 54. And uh, they just did a wonderful renovation in there. And it was a time in New York City where disco was booming. You had the great underground clubs. Infinity was one. Hurrah Uptown was another one. You also had the underground punk clubs like CBGB, where a lot of the artist people and a lot of the nightlife people congregated. And eventually, everybody came together with great promotion. And Studio 54 uh, premiered. And it drew the likes of every celebrity under the sun uh, to Hollywood royalty, to uh, uh, royal princes from the Middle East, to um, the Kennedys, uh, Truman Capote, Francesco Scavullo, of course, Warhol and his whole entourage, and then average civilians that fit the mold. So you could have a whole cast of people. The Mark Beneke, who was the doorman at the time, it was very much like a dictatorship at that door. But inside, it was pure bliss, pure freedom. But if you made it past those velvet ropes and got in to the club, it was, uh, it was like heaven. It was a place and a space second to none. 
that can never be duplicated or never be replicated. It was once in a lifetime, it'll never be again, uh, and it was special. It was short-lived, but probably for good reasons, because it was like Sodom and Gomorrah. It was as hedonistic as it gets. I have seen some things with these eyes that literally, uh, if I wrote a book or something, I've been asked many times to do interviews, to, to comment when there's films being made, I stay away from it, you know? What I saw comes with me, and I think that's fair and honest. But it was magic. And another great thing about it was Steve Rubell, I witnessed many times, would treat everybody the same. So you could be John Travolta, and you could be sitting there in a chair, and of course everybody's fawning all over you, especially those years, Saturday Night Fever, Travolta was God. They're giving you free champagne. I could be just an average guy from Brooklyn sitting next to it. Steve Rubell would bring me a champagne and treat me equally as Travolta was right there. And he might even say, meet my friend John. That was the magic. Everybody was one. There were no judgments. We had every walk of life, every sexual orientation. And it was just, um, it was magic. And, you know, it's, it's hard to put into words. It was surreal. You know, I'm digging now because there are so many memories. It's hard to go back into those annals and pull them all up. But I'll do my best. Uh, while it was going on, did you understand that this was something special, that this was something that uh, is like once around once in a lifetime thing for pe the people who were there? Did they appreciate it while it was going on? Or, or was it something like some years later you understood like, holy shit, what we had was very special? Well, during those years of the 70s, it was crazy in New York. It was safe. It was dangerous. There were certain spaces where you could go, where you couldn't go. People were looking for a haven. Um, they did a lot of advanced promotion, word of mouth. These guys that were all involved, including Richie, who was going to be the disc jockey, they developed a groundswell beforehand. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is a rumor that's been circulating, and I honestly, I never made it my business to find out if it was true or not. But rumor had it that the first two nights, they kept the doors closed and the music blaring, and they had a million people outside that they wouldn't let in. So the street is literally filled all the way down with hundreds and hundreds of people wanting to get into this nightclub. And you can hear the music and the guys are at the front door not letting anybody in. Sorry, we're sold out. We're capacity, we're capacity. Media's down there, what's going on? Boom, when they do open the doors, it's like a tsunami of people. But they were very selective on who got in. If I was a, a guy by myself, I wasn't getting in, unless, of course, I was a celebrity or somebody of some high stature that uh, should have been in there. Uh, but they didn't want guys like as predators looking to hit on girls uh, or pick up chicks and stuff like that. They didn't want that. Um, so they shied away from that, but they were able to put together a cast of people where it just blended and molded. You had everything from... Disco Sally, who was the 77-year-old lady who would come four or five nights a week, and she wouldn't get off the dance floor. Then you had Rollerina, who would just, you know, dressed up as a crazy wild person on roller skates the whole night. Uh, you had Mark Stevens and his group, La Clique, that would spray paint their bodies completely silver and go out there and do mime or whatever. So you had people that would come in and perform. And the music was second to none. And people moved and grooved. Sadly, a big part of it was drugs, and it was out of control. Um, cocaine became very prevalent, and a lot of people thought, wow, this is the wonder drug. You know, you do this drug, you feel euphoric, you can split the atom, you know? And then people started waking up and realizing, where's the coke? I need coke. Started realizing it was addictive. And little by little, good people ended up either, sadly in some cases, ODing or going away to drug rehab. It's ruined and it's taken down a lot of people. As a DJ, I had to be on my game. I had to be sharp. I didn't mess with any of that stuff and I didn't even drink alcohol. I had to focus on mixing those records, reading that crowd, taking that crowd up, knowing when to take them down because they got to go to the bar and buy some drinks too. So my art was different, but I could see the rise and the decline. And then, Sex was everywhere. 
If I was in the DJ booth, I could look up. There was a balcony up there, and you could see people having sex up in the balcony. You could walk into the men's room. You could walk into the ladies' room, and there would be orgies. Downstairs in the basement, people would be carrying on. You know, it wasn't blatant in your face, but it was there. So one day, AIDS hits. Down comes the curtain. It all closes. It all stops. The whole dynamic of New York City lifestyle changed with the, with the onslaught of AIDS. And nobody knew what it was. All of a sudden, we know a lot of gay friends are dying. Some of my closest friends that were gay sadly left this earth way too early. You know, and there weren't drugs then to treat them. It was a mystery. But for some reason, it seemed to be embedded within the gay community first. So that happened. And this was in a small time during the late 70s and the early 80s. And uh, Studio 54 was a benchmark during that time in that space. So it was beautiful. It was blissful. It was euphoric. It was great. But it also had its scars through cultural backlash. Do you remember what year it was when AIDS hit, when everybody understood, like, hey... It, the or... exact date? I don't know specifics on that. I, you know, you can Google it, but uh, I remember it, and everybody was scared. They even thought it was from what they call emyl nitrate. Emyl nitrate is a little thing that you take if you're having a heart attack. For some reason, I don't know what the, what, what the attraction is. A lot of people used to be on the dance floor, and they'd be hitting the emyl nitrate. I don't know what it does, but there was a lot of it out there. Um, a lot of people thought it was stemming from there. They even had conjecture that it was a green monkey that bit somebody in Africa, and it worked its way back into, you know, almost like a... A little mini pandemic. Um, and then, you know, research and charity and fundraising and good science took us to where we needed to go. And, you know, uh, I've always been involved with AIDS research, contributing money. I was a very big advocate and a participant in APLA, which was AIDS Project LA. The reason why I saw as a young man, as a young human being, how that disease ravaged people how it tore families apart. And I always said, anything I can do into that world to make a difference and to help, where do I sign up? And I always have, and I always will. And we're back with Peter Napoliello. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. And you know what's interesting? I have to bring this up. In America, my worst nightmare was the first day of school. Because when you're there, especially as a young kid, the teacher's calling roll call. And by the time she gets to the ends, I know she's at my name, but she just stops. And I have to stand up and say, Napoliello. Americans cannot pronounce my last name at all. Every time I come to Europe, or even living in Europe, Europeans say it flawlessly, perfectly, anytime. So yes, you said it great. All my years living and working in the entertainment business in Hollywood, everybody always chops their name in half or changes their name. I refuse to, out of respect for my family. I always kept my family name. And you know, it's, it's, it's a, a different dynamic. Are they both from uh, Italy? Well, my parents were born in the States. My grandparents came from Italy in the late 1800s. There was a massive wave of migration, and my parents came, my grandparents came from New York, uh, came to New York, rather. But as I was growing up, you wanted to be Americanized as much as possible. So my parents de didn't even speak Italian. And again, you just wanted to know about nationalism. So I never had any connection to my roots and I never had any connection to the language. It wasn't until years later that I started traveling and I went to Italy and I said, wow, my bloodline is from here. This is cool. You know? And Italians really used to be very second rate citizens in America, right? It, there used to be a lot of racism against Italians, especially in uh, late 1900s and early uh, That's very 20th true. century. But in, in truth and in fairness, I think many groups were discriminated oh, against. Yeah. Of course, Jews were persecuted and discriminated. They were Irish, Italians certainly were. You were looked at as, you know, um, uneducated. You didn't speak the language. You weren't this, you weren't that. And it's just sad, but that's existed in the world as far back as those history books go. Uh, but it was a melting pot 
because each individual group of people, no matter where they came from, they formed and forged together. And some of the architecture in New York is absolutely beautiful. And it's built by Dutch architects. And then you get a little German flavor, and of course, your Italian neighborhoods. And it just made for uh, a groovy scene. I mean, if you want to be ignorant and hard-headed, you know, you could find fault and negativity in anything. But you're not going to enjoy your life running around living like that. Uh, let's talk about another son of immigrants, this beautiful gentleman. Yep. Uh, again, mid-70s, late-70s, living in New York City. Who was Andy Warhol at that time? Andy was always great because Andy goes back to the 60s. I mean, he came up during the years. And I, being a music freak, that's how I was introduced to Andy, because there was a strong connection with him and Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground and Nico. And they created a whole entourage. And they had a downtown scene. In New York City, anything below 14th Street was considered downtown. And that's where the artistic people hung out, the bohemian people. It wasn't the uptown crowd, which would be more like Ralph Lauren, Polo, and, you know, more upper echelon looking at least. And Warhol was part of that downtown sect, and they had a whole scene going down there that was second to none. And he was always idolized and worshipped. And he congregated around the right people, and he was making very interesting films like Andy Warhol's Trash, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. And he had certain actors that would work with him exclusively, like Joe D'Alessandro or Holly Woodland. These were great, great personalities that were part of the art community. They piqued people's curiosity. So if I'm a young student or an art student living in Canton, Ohio, or if I'm in the Midwest, or if I'm in anywhere other than New York City, I'm reading about these people. And you're reading the stories, and then you're listening to the music, and it's becoming a part of you. So as you either get influenced by these people, you pull from their art and maybe do something similar. But Warhol offered that, and he was very, very generous. Uh, he wouldn't snub other artists. I mean, there was times at Studio 54 where you'd have, you know, Dolly <laughs> come walking through the doors, uh, or great photographers like Francesco Scavullo. And these were truly, truly artistic people. And um, they had a pulse and an energy about them that was addicting. So if that was your thing, Warhol was God well into the 60s, into the 70s, up until his passing, and even now. And, uh, you know, there came others after him. Keith Haring was very similar to that, and he came in on the scene, and he had a wonderful place in the village called The Pop Shop. And he had his magnets, and he had his posters, and it was a groovy place. You go hang out, and you buy some merchandise, and Kenny Scharf came out of that. And then on 14th Street, you had the Chelsea Hotel, and Jean-Michel Basquiat came out of there. So it was a mecca. It was a melting pot for art in the downtown scene that still to this day very much resonates and very much exists. I saw flashbacks when I went to the Fotografiska Warhol party. The crowd was really interesting, and I said to a patron there, I said, are these Estonian people? Because I have never seen these people before. It's almost like they brought them in from New York City downtown and put them here. No, these are all Estonians. So I said, wow, I've been living under a rock here. i got to get out more often. There's a great art scene and a community that's very reminiscent of that scene. There is definitely an underground scene that if you're not a part of it, then you won't see it uh, exactly. most days. And these are the people that... Which uh, is the beauty of it, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, but the reason why I asked that question is because, again, as a young person, for me, uh, growing up, there are so many people who have already become legends, and many of them dead, some of them still are still alive. But it's uh, very interesting for me to understand that... Um, with some people, the stories and the legends about them, they only rise after they're dead. Sadly. Uh, yeah. Your artwork, if you own their artwork, it certainly goes up in value after their passing. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of late discoveries and, you know, there's a lot of uh, interesting people on, in many facets of uh, the entertainment, arts, or, or even life that sometimes don't rise to fruition or recognition until after their passing. Uh, hopefully, you know, if all things go according to the big plan, there's life after life after life after life. You can have a peek back and see, oh, yeah, they finally got me. But, you know, that remains to be seen. Did you ever meet Jean-Michel? I've been in his company. 
One thing about me, I never got starstruck. In other words, if I was in the room and Mick Jagger was in the room, okay, I love their music, I'm a Stones freak, but I'm not the type of person to go up and get crazy on it with them. One group, yes, tennis players. I was a tennis freak. So back then you had McEnroe, you had Bjorn Borg, you had Vetus Gerolitis, you had Jimmy Connors. They were coming into Studio 54 all the time. Guess what? I was in their face. Dude, I saw the match last week, center court. What's up? Your serve was on fire. So there I go. But in other capacities, no. Answering your question, I've been in many rooms, many social functions where Basquiat walks right by me, where Warhol walked right by me. Of course, I knew Andy. Hey, Andy, how you doing? But I wasn't part of the so-called inner workings. I wasn't in that thing morning, noon, and night like most of his entourage was. But I was a fixture, and I would uh, make a cameo appearance. And, uh, you know, a nod and a wink is, is, is equally as good as a handshake or a pound. So, yeah, I, I, I love those people because they weren't putting it on. They weren't masking it. They were not rehearsed. They were as real as it gets. Uh, would you say that um, the way that people enjoy parties and music, and of course you're older now and you live in a different country and so on, but do you feel that maybe there was like a special kind of... Um, freedom back then because obviously nobody used uh, cell phones there were cameras but they weren't everywhere with with all the people all the time so uh was there a special kind of freedom back then that we have lost now me personally yes i mean i can't speak for everybody but i think people coming out of that scene and that cycle and that time you know we look at life a lot different now there are days when i go out that i purposely don't bring my phone with me i purposely leave it home and I do it for a reason, because if I'm sitting at an outdoor cafe, I notice that I'm looking at the sky and I'm appreciating, wow, look how beautiful it is. Look at the color. Look at the cloud formation. Or I might see an interesting bird hopping around. I, I get in touch with, you have to be in touch with life, especially nature, especially your surroundings. But if you want to do a case study and go out there and observe people, most people are like this. And it's here, and it's here, and it's here. And it's bad enough it's pulling you away from your natural elements, but it's also very bad for the retina in your eyes. You know what I mean? That white constantly, uh, that white light constantly hammering your retinas. It can't be good. Um, so for me, and I think a lot of people that came from that world could probably agree with me quite strongly. Younger people today, they're weaned on that. They don't know that. They've had an iPad shoved in their face from their parents since they're six, seven, eight months so they don't cry in the backseat of the car. They can watch cartoons, you know, and by the time they're one or two, they're sitting at the dinner table and they're not going to eat unless you give it to them, you know. It's the ice cream and the iPad. Without it, your kid isn't going to do anything. So it's sad. But look, it's life, it's progress, it's, you know, it's uh, evolution. Do you feel people have misunderstandings about, uh, let's say, the 70s and the 80s, the way that we think that, oh, maybe it was like that, maybe it was like that, but uh, we're not right about that? You know, <laughs> I love that question. Um, I'm, not a, I'm at a point in my life where, as far as my career goes, my career is... I already proved what I had to prove. I have close to 76 gold and platinum albums to my credit, at least 16 Grammys, and an Academy Award for work I did with Stevie Wonder on I Just Called to Say I Love You for the movie The Woman in Red. So basically, that gives me a sense of freedom where I don't have to worry about what I say anymore, but I believe in truth. And if you're asked a question, you must be truthful and forthcoming and give that person an honest answer. So, you know, what I try to do is I try to look at life um, through rose-colored glasses and I try to see the good in everything as keeping the philosophy that if you treat me good, I'll treat you better. It's really that simple. It's not a difficult equation. Do you feel like there is something that uh, people believe that is, again, a misbelief, a misplaced belief? That is, uh, again, it can be generational or it, it can be, as you pointed out, that half of the country hates the other half and vice versa. Do you feel like there is something that is a general belief that is held by people that is wrong? That is a difficult question. And if I had the answer to that question, 
I would probably be able to pick the right stocks, you know, before casting the weather. <laughs> um, that I don't know. That's that's a heavy question that I, I don't want to say I want to duck. But all I could say is I think the world needs help. The world needs leadership. The world needs coming together. We have too much division right now. You know, there are no more shades of gray. It's either black or white. And you pick your team. The way I see that is you don't pick your team. You pick your poison. One is hemlock and one is strychnine. It's all poison. And until we bring it together, then we will find the elixir of life. And I just pray for the best. I hope for the best. And, you know, I just, uh, I just pray. And I don't want to sound like a doomsdayer, but we need help as a people. We need to come together. And it starts with leadership. And it also seeps into family, family values. That's very important, in my opinion. And welcome back. Uh, Peter, uh, you said before that everybody screws up. Tell me about the time when you screwed up in your life. Oh, my God. I would be incriminating myself so much. I would be painting a picture. Look, um, the most important things we can do as people is make good choices and conscious choices by, while being selfless. So if I make a choice that I know is going to benefit me and me alone, it's okay if that's all that's in that world. But I have to make a choice that resolves and has other people involved. I have to have those people in my mind as well. So um, choices, making good choices, that is the key to it and living up to it. And if you make a bad choice, own it. I would still like to press you on giving me an example of you screwing up something. Right now, I kick myself for not going to law school. And the reason why I didn't go to law school was a combination of things. I was too immersed in music, and I was a, my mindset was there, and I was like a one-trick pony. That's all I wanted. And it was kind of like a rebellion thing, too, an ignorant thing. I didn't want to go the way the family business was. So what I do know today, I think like a lawyer. So it's almost as if I did go to law school. And if you go and get a law degree, you don't have to be a lawyer. You could go run a corporation. You could run your own business because law school basically teaches you how to think a certain way. And I would like to be more prevalent in thinking that way to help me navigate through this crazy thing we call it life. And the second screw up, and it's probably my biggest screw up, is I never settled down and I never had a family. I would love to have had children because I go crazy over children. I spoil them. I live vicariously through my friends' kids. My sister's two children, I smothered them with gifts. And I had connections in the world, so I was able to get them toys a year before they came out. And their friends would see these things. Hey, how come I don't have that toy? So, I, you know, the point I'm trying to make is it was a big, 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 big mistake. And because of that, there's a major void and a major hole in my life that's not complete. And it's too late to fill that chapter now. So those were two of my biggest screw-ups. And they were decisions that I made. I chose career over family. I wasn't able to hold down a relationship because I'd start my morning early. I was the first one in the office. And I was the last one to leave in the evening, and then I'd roll into the home, and my ear would be in the phone talking to my staff or talking to artists or taking care of business till 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning. My partner, my girlfriend at the time, would like look at me like, yeah, you know, this has been nice, see you later, and they're gone. So sacrifices, and um, I can't do them over. I don't know how much my life would have changed if I had done those things differently, probably drastically, because to manage my career and to be able to have a family and raise a family would have been very difficult. Uh, but here I am. So what I am now is I'm a product of my environment. You know, I have a boisterous, loud personality. I speak loud because I'm deaf in one ear, so unfortunately I can't hear myself. But when I'm out and about, especially here in Estonia, which is predominantly reserved and quiet, I'm like a tornado coming through, and what is this guy? And he's blah, 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 blah. And people take a step back, and they're not ready for it yet. 
But the most important thing for me is I would hope that they'd know that I come from the heart, that I'm a good soul, and I always extend the olive branch in peace, you know. And uh, it takes time, but two of the biggest mistakes are uh, no children, no family, and um, not going to law school. Higher education is very important. If for nothing else, personal enrichment. It's growing. Uh, okay, wow. Uh, where did you get your mindset from? Because you hinted that your parents were lawyers, at least from my one side. My dad was, uh, and my mom was bohemian. My mom was an artist. Okay. My mom was as bohemian as they get. She was an old school hippie. She was a hippie before hippies existed. But she was a horticulturalist which means her forte and her expertise was flowers. My mother was a breeder of orchids. She would take one orchid strain and another orchid strain and come up. She was the president of the uh, American Orchid Association. My mother was also a mason. If you know anything about Masonic Temple and a mason, she was what they call a worthy matron of the Eastern Star. So I had a father who was very, very conservative, pinstripe suit up, as straight ahead within the parameters that taught me rules, regulations, you show discipline, you open doors for ladies, you say please, you say thank you, you make sure the babushkas, wherever they are, are in good form. You look after people. My mother, very free-forming, very free, taught me art, taught me spirituality, taught me everything that my father wasn't. So I had balance. And that kind of balance is great, but because my dad worked all day, I was predominantly raised by my mother. So I'm in touch with my feminine side. I can feel the softness of things. I can see colors. I can have conversations with people about art. And I'm not an art expert and talk about the Impressionist at the Museum d'Orsay or the, the Statue of David or Michelangelo, what he did with the Sistine Chapel, or Raku, which is a form of sculpture. People don't know this stuff. As a kid growing up, I could care less. I thought it was one ear out the other. It stays with you. So that's why I say family values, parenting is so important. It's not easy though. And I was lucky to have that, but I had the balance. So that helped me tremendously in getting into my world. Did you ever lose that? Because if you worked in the music business, which is notoriously cutthroat and very, uh, can be very horrible. evil and horrible, did you manage to keep that, keep that throughout that time? I got in trouble a lot because I was more geared towards the artists. In other words, I would fight for the artists. So I'd go into board meetings or marketing meetings with top tier guys like, you know, the head of Disney or whoever it would be, James Cameron from Lightstorm with Arnold Schwarzenegger, they're doing Terminator 3. I've got artists and music on these movies. So I'm in high level meetings with the suit and everything else conducting my business and I'm not going to be politically correct. I'm not going to tell them like everybody else does what they want to hear. I'm fighting for my artist, for my craft, because I know what's at stake. That's an artist's livelihood. That's their DNA. That's their art. That's their vision. You must protect that. It got me in trouble. So, yeah, you can be really disillusioned, and you can really commit career Harry Carey, so to speak, uh, if you say the wrong things in the music business. But I stay true to myself and true to my form, yeah, I took it on the chin many times going up the corporate ladder, but I also got there with a little bit of pride so I can go like this and say, as Frank Sinatra says, I did it my way. Um, but I never broke rank. I always stayed loyal, and I always was diplomatic in listening to other opinions. I'm not right all the time, and I've been proven wrong many times. So, yeah, you do lose it, and I have to honestly say the entertainment business as a whole you know, there's a quote by Hunter S. Thompson that's out there where it's a money snake pit where pimps and thieves run free, but there's also a good side to it. <laughs> so there's a little bit of irony there that describes it. But I think today's day and age, any business is like that. Look at Wall Street. Look at these hedge fund guys. You see the movie The Wolf of Wall Street? These people are animals. When there's money involved, there's greed involved. I was lucky. I learned in my 30s. You reach things, you buy houses, you buy cars, and you find out you're still not happy. Gee, I'm less happy than when I didn't have it. And if I'm not happy now, what is going to make me happy? You crash and burn. You ask a lot of life questions. So I knew going forward in my upper demo, so to speak, that I didn't care about, you know, put it this way. I don't like 
to date or associate or invest my life in women that care more about a Gucci pocketbook than they do that dog walking on the street. Where is its owner? Do you know what I mean? So that's just me. And again, I just want to be clear that these are my viewpoints and my viewpoints alone. In no way am I advocating to try to preach or shoving my vision down anybody's throat. I'm here to tell my story. Have you had any important beliefs or views uh, or values that have changed throughout your life? It's interesting because I think life goes through, for me, it went through a five-year cycle. If I had to describe it, every five years, it's as if I unzip my skin and I step out and I'm a new person. And you see different. You see the world differently. And I tell you, some people are afraid to get old. When you hit 50, guess what? That's when you put the car in gear and you go. Those are great, great, great years. So if I can spread any insight to young people coming up, don't be afraid to get old. Take all your knowledge so as you get up there with age, you're more wise. That's what it's all about, you know, and you take it on with you. And you spread it. You be generous with that wisdom. You teach people. You show people. Uh, we haven't talked about how did you end up in Estonia? Because I guess it's something that is very interesting for most people to know. It seems so, because again, I've told you this before in private, but uh, talking to somebody like you, I feel like I was in New York City. Because we don't, as you mentioned yourself, we don't have, have that many people like you here. So it feels very sur surreal. Well, especially so, my accent, yeah. because I have the heaviest New York accent. Oh, yeah. People might not know yeah. that. And if people are just watching this, they would be so confused. Who is this man? Okay, yeah. he's talking about all those things. Where is he from? Why is he here? What's he doing here? What's the deal? All right. Well, first of all, I'm not running from the law because <laughs> I wear my sports clothes a little bit different and I stick out when I walk around the street. I'm not chasing women because if I was going to chase women and be a womanizer, I would be in Hollywood where the most beautiful starlets from all over the world go to live. And I'm certainly not washing money because I don't even know how to wash money. I hear that expression so often. So eliminating those three things, which I think everybody is almost immediately suspect of, I came here by chance. It's almost as if I was an outcast and I just happened to land here. I knew about Estonia. I had an invite to come here. But when I came as a Westerner, I don't see architecture like this. I'm walking through the old town and I say to myself, gee, am I on the Disney lot? Am I on the Warner Brothers Pictures lot? Are these staged? Is this real? And I realize it's real. Coming from a creative background, I like film. I've been involved with making films. I've written screenplays before. I know cinematography. And I say, boy, what a beautiful backdrop this is. Witnessing the white nights during the summer months, Yanni Paiv, you don't see light like that like you see in a studio or on a film set. That's something that a lighting director goes crazy over it. And if you capture it, you have something very unique. So I put all those elements together and having lived in Europe before, I lived in London for two years, I lived in Holland for two years, I lived in Italy for six months. Going back to California, I said, okay, it's time to go back to Europe. Where am I gonna go? I said, guess what? I'm gonna base in Estonia. Why? I'm two hours, or better yet, three and a half hours to Istanbul. I'm two and a half hours to Rome. I'm two into London, I'm an hour into Stockholm, 45 or 20 minutes into Helsinki, an hour over into St. Petersburg. I have access to see some really great places in the world that I normally wouldn't get to see. Why not? So coming here, I said to myself, all right, I don't want to be dormant. I don't want to be unproductive. I want to stay active. So having the Pilates business behind me in my past, I naturally did that here. And I found my way into Radio 2 to do the radio show, which has been five years now. But it's not a bad place to be. And a lot of times people look at me like, well, you know, you could be this and that. I choose to be here. It's good country. There's a lot of great opportunity. Maybe not for me because I'm done with my career. I'm just treading water and staying busy and staying active. It's important. But for young people, I always tell them, you got a great country here. It's good to fly the coop, go away, get an education, get some world experience, maybe get some job experience, but come home. Build this country. Oh, but it's such a small country. Hey, Rome was a microcosm that ruled the world for over 200 years. 
A guy named Frank Sinatra is from a little place called Hoboken, New Jersey. So don't give me Estonia as a small place. It's a mindset. I always say it's a revolution of the mind. You're in a space. And I will say this, and I say this from the heart, there's an energy here, a groundswell underneath that's like no place else. There are certain vortexes around the world that have energy that channels in. San Francisco is one. Santa Fe, New Mexico is another one. Parts of Holland have it. Estonia, bubbling under. So there are many reasons why I'm here. There are many reasons why I stay here. Are there any other misconceptions that Estonians have about ourselves? that you as an outsider see that it's not quite like that? Because Estonians always like, we like to ask about ourselves, but we also like to talk about ourselves. Like, oh, we're so, we're very conserved. We don't like to talk, we're very mean, very angry, very this and that. Uh, do, do you see, how do you see Estonians as an outsider? That's a, a lovely question. One of the first things when I first came here, you know, as you can tell by my personality from the show, I can talk, I can go on and on and on. And mostly because I love people and I love making new friends. But I don't have a problem walking on the streets in the morning if somebody's walking by, top of the morning to you, good morning, beautiful day, enjoying yourself, everything good. People look at you like, <laughs> and I got a lot of negativity on that. And I had a dear friend of mine who explained to me, well, we have an expression here, Estonians eat Estonians. I found out very soon that Americans are on that menu too because I wasn't getting any love and I wasn't really welcomed with open arms. But you have to be diplomatic and you have to be democratic and you have to be smart and you have to look at it and you have to say this to yourself. It's a brand new country in terms of freedom. It's going on 30 years, but in essence, it's still a baby taking its baby steps. So you must let the people and the society groom and become acclimated and become comfortable, especially when strangers like myself come waltzing through. It's like, who is this? What is this? What does he want? You know? So that's a growing process that I could see about this country. But I get beyond that because when I do go into the countryside and I meet the people that are the salt of the earth, the seniors, the ones that lived and suffered under occupation, from my very first day that I took my first breath of life, I knew something called freedom. I have no idea or any inclination what occupation really feels like. I can only generalize and guess. But when I look into these people's eyes, I see their soul and I see the suffering and I see the angst and I see the pain. And I realize now that these lovely people are in the twilight of their life they have something called freedom, and boom, what do they get hit with? A pandemic. And now that we're slowly coming out of the pandemic, boom, what do they get hit with? An electric bill that is ridiculous. So it makes me want to do more, because that's my high, and that gets me off, is helping people. So I think it's important. My country has plenty of benefits and plenty of programs to help people. I don't need to do it there. I enjoy doing it here. And sometimes I second guess myself and sometimes I don't question why I'm here. I'm here and that's it. And I'm okay and I'm cool and I'm good. And uh, you know, there's really not much more I can say about it, but it's a good place. That's very beautiful. Uh, the motto of Fotografiska is inspiring a more conscious world. And this is something that we try to build all of our podcasts and exhibitions and everything on, basically. Uh, what would you say? How can we inspire a more conscious world? It comes from the heart. You know, as Helen Keller, the blind, beautiful woman, quoted and saying, uh, the most beautiful things that you can't see or feel in life, you have to have them in your heart. And I think that's something that really resonates with me. Um, I don't think Estonia is any different than anywhere else, but I kind of feel like I was living under a rock because I'm at a point in my life where I don't go out and party too much. I pretty much live under the radar and I'm low, low. I'm in bed early. I'm up early. I don't get out and get crazy. I go to nice dinners. I go see a movie. I travel a little bit, but you won't see me in the bars and the nightclubs. I don't drink and my days of high craziness are behind me. But... Um, I feel like I'm living under a rock because you guys have been around for a while and I didn't even know you existed. And then I went up there and I said, wow. 
and then I see the artists and the expos, and then I see the layout, and then I meet the people that are involved, and everybody under that roof, from the young people that are working in the cafeteria downstairs, to the people that are working into the gift shop, to the art curators, to the restaurant upstairs, they're all really sweet, nice people. They make you feel comfortable. There's a good energy and a good vibe there. So in answer to your question, I think you're doing it. And I think peace and love and truth will find its way because when you have venues like that, it's like a temple where people like me and people who think like me that are open-minded and loving and caring and compassionate, it becomes our temple where we come to worship. And I think you guys have it and I'm really, really thankful and glad that I found it. But I really feel stupid, <laughs> like what were you, th where have you been, you know? It's been here. So I think the fact that it's arrived, I think only time will tell. And since I've been involved and coming up there and frequenting it and meeting nice people like you and everybody else that's there, I have to honestly say that I'm enamored that I'm really impressed. But more than that, I'm thankful. And I think the Estonian people have to look at it like that too. It's a cool thing to have here. I think there's one here, there's one in Stockholm, there's one uh, Berlin. New York, and they're making one, uh, opening one in Berlin, Shanghai, and Miami yeah. uh, this year and next year. So, yeah. you know, you have a few crown, your few jewels in the crown, and there's one a crown jewel right there in Estonia. So I think it's great. And you know what? You channel those energies to each other, you network, you learn world art, you learn world people. I think you're on the cusp and on the verge of doing great things. Uh, the most important thing, and I always say this, is a smile is the universal language to kindness. Just smile. It really elevates and it really brings people's moods and spirits up. Uh, Peter, I have one more question to you. Uh, Andy wrote in his diary something that uh, I got reminded of when you were talking about Helen Keller. And Andy wrote that people should fall in love with their eyes closed. What does that statement mean to you? Personally, when I close my eyes, I have no fears. All my inhibitions go, all my protection gets dropped, because when I close my eyes, I'm f truly free. In the mind, it's infinite. So if you can approach anything, whether it's the love of an animal, that you're going to feel the animal and it's going to lick your hand or scratch you, or it's a lovely partner that you're going to caress and you're going to hold and you might even make mouth contact and kiss. Under the sky, sky clad, is truth and freedom. What better way to fall in love than meeting them at a bar and she's a hot tomato. Oh baby, you got legs. You know, does uh, beef come with that shake? You know, rather than that superficial, stereotypical nonsense, which is vapid, you get nothing out of that the next morning. I think Andy, I never heard that quote before, by the way. So what you just heard from me is what flowed out of me. Uh, and that's beautiful. I'm going to remember that one. I never heard that before. Thank you. Uh, Peter Napoliello, thank you very, very much for coming. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Suure aitäh kõik teile vaatamast ja järgmise korrani. Jätäga.